Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alpha Chat, the conversational podcast about business and economics from the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and those of you who are regular listeners or used to be regular listeners because we haven't done a show in a while might notice that it's been a long time since we've produced Alpha Chats regularly, but that's going to change, and we're really excited about it. So please stick around until the end of the episode when I'll have a message for listeners and tell you more about it. But for now, let's get right to the show. Three topics on today's show. First up, the October 15th flash crash in U.S. Treasuries. Nobody can explain it, not even U.S. regulators who tried in a report this week. But the report did get into the wider implications for trading in this vastly important market. The FT's market reporter, Joe Renison, is going to take us through it. After that, we're going to talk to the FT's media reporter, Shannon Bond, about how U.S. presidential candidates are spending so much money on social media platforms. What are they getting for it? And then finally, I'm really excited about this topic. We're going to be talking to economist-turned-author Allison Schrager about the end of men thesis from a couple of years ago and why it might have been premature. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. The October 15th flash crash in U.S. Treasuries. That's last October 15th. It was a day of wild gyrations in the treasury market. Those gyrations all happened in the span of hours, if not minutes, actually. And the funny thing about it is nobody can explain what's happened except Joe Renison, U.S. markets reporter for the Financial Times. Joe, that is quite a burden I think I've just given you. That's setting me up to fail, really, (laughs) isn't it? No, but it's true. Nobody actually can explain this yet. But there was this report, and this is why this is news, by U.S. regulators, the Fed, the Treasury, trying to explain what happened. And they didn't quite get at it. But before we even go into it, I guess a quick note for our listeners, the U.S. Treasury market, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, is about a $12 trillion market. On that day, what happened was there was a huge plunge in yields, which means that prices went up. So there was all this frenetic buying activity that drove prices up and yields down. And then almost just as fast as that happened, it reversed. And then there was a lot of selling activity. The price went down and the yields simultaneously went up. Not simultaneously. It's the same thing. But you know what I mean. That's, yeah. that's about right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all kinds of competing explanations for this in the time since last October. But this report, I think we can say is probably the most authoritative report we've had so far. Before we even get to October 15th, what, according to the report or according to you, were the kind of macroeconomic influences that might have affected what happened that day, the ones we should know about going into October 15th before we try to explain what happened and why it matters. Sure. So like you say, I think the the, the prevailing verdict from the Treasury is the fact that they can't fully explain what happened. And they, they do give a bunch of different reasons. One of those is a, a big bet by investors, 
hedge funds on US growth going through the first half of 2014. What that means is they were selling US treasuries on the expectation that the Fed would raise interest rates and then they would be able to buy back and and make money. At the same time, they were sort of betting on rising oil prices, equities, things like that. Over the summer, that bet started to look not so good. Oil prices were falling. The Fed was making more dour comments about whether they would raise rates, kind of suggesting they wouldn't. And also... And the dollar was strengthening too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So all um, those things, just to be clear for our listeners, so all those things essentially signaled that inflation would remain lower than previously expected for a longer period of time, which meant that the Fed would perhaps delay the period of rate hikes as, in fact, is what happened, right? So that's going into the summer of 2014. Exactly. And then through September and early October, a few other things happened. So some other big bets that hedge funds had made, for example, on a potential merger between the pharmaceutical giants Shire and AbbVie, some less significant ones around an investor lawsuit over the mortgage guarantors Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was thrown out of court. These things kind of just amplified investors' fears and encouraged a sort of flight to quality. The Shire Abvi merger fell apart on the evening of October 14th after trading had closed. October 15th comes around, markets open, and there is this flurry, this this huge demand to buy treasuries, to cover positions, a flight to quality, to just kind of hopefully uh, retrench and reassess, I suppose. Right. So you've got all this, what you might call pent up demand for U.S. treasuries going into October 15th. And then on that day, uh, I believe a little bit before 10 o'clock, there's this extraordinary downward move. It was something like 33 basis points in the 10-year U.S. Treasury in yield, which meant that people were buying a lot of treasuries. And what do we think might have sparked it? Well, so the spark or the attributed spark is weak U.S. uh, retail sales data. But that that usually would never be enough to trigger something like this. The moves that we saw that day have only been seen on three other occasions since 1998. And in all of those occasions, there was a big policy announcement that caused those swings. U.S. retail sales, a sign that maybe the economy wasn't as strong as we thought, but this sort of thing would never, would usually not be enough to cause this huge, this frenetic, this intense buying activity in U.S. treasuries. I want to say something else because you noted that this has happened something like three times in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. What's funny about this to me is that statisticians and economists will often refer to a move this big as a kind of seven or eight standard deviation event, which technically means it should only happen like once every three billion years or something like that. I mean, that kind of that line of thinking, I think, is normally overwrought, but it's just to give a sense of how big a deal this was, at least at the time, people were trying to figure out what was happening. So retail sales come in a little bit weak. That seems to be the catalyst, but nobody can quite explain why the plunge in yields was so precipitous, why why the activity was of this magnitude. So that's, that is where things kind of come a bit unstuck, and people have a lot of theories. There is a lot of data that is indicative of certain behavior. Dealers have retrenched from their traditional role as middlemen within markets. Previously, at least to some extent, they would have absorbed some of this this shock. 
And they're, they're not doing that anymore. There are a lot of reasons why, but they're not. That's right. the important thing. The, the dealers that in the past might have stood between trades in the U.S. Treasury market. So if there's a lot of buying or selling activity, they would have taken the other side of that trade. In this case, they weren't there to the same extent as they have been in the past. And so there wasn't as much liquidity to absorb exactly. all this activity. Exactly. But there was trading and there was continuous trading. That's really important. Markets didn't stop working. There was trading. The trading, the majority of it, came from high-frequency firms, computer algorithms, computer-driven trading. Now, banks operate these models as well, but they're also operated out of non-bank kind of proprietary trading shops. Right. And these firms differ in size. They differ in their strategies. They differ in like how sophisticated they are. So you get some big guys like Citadel who are also making markets for clients. And then you get some small little tech startup-esque trading shops in Chicago that just have 20 guys uh, looking at a bunch of computer screens. These guys traded a lot in that time. Volumes spiked. They, would, they accounted for, I think, over 70% of the volume going through. The algorithmic traders did. Yeah, of the volume going through in that spike. And this meant that probably they were trading with each other a lot. What's also interesting is in some cases they were trading with themselves. With themselves. So they <laughs> were themselves. buying and selling from each other. Well, no, but not not one with another, but with itself. With it, with, yeah, with itself. <laughs> so self trading. Self trading is basically where two algorithms run by the same firm, like interact Trade against each other. Yeah. So there's no sort of the trades are a wash essentially. Yeah, and this is a important definition point in a way. If that's accidental and not intended, then that's an anomaly of markets. If it's deliberate, then it starts to get onto the sort of blurred line of legality and this is something that people are beginning to look at a bit more closely now and i think the real takeaway here whilst we maybe still can't explain precisely what happened or exactly the combination of factors that that came into play here what we can say is that is unprecedented and it represents a shift in the way the treasury market operates i actually want to get into that a lot more a bit later. But before then, I also want to talk about what happened after this big plunge in yield. So there's all this buying activity driven by these algorithms. They're all on the same side of the trade or you know close to it. According to your writing, you've got the dealers and the buy side. So the, the algorithmic traders who were buying these treasuries, they're kind of everybody either on the same side of the trade or totally absent. So you've got this plunge in yields as prices are going up. And then the thing reverses. What do we think might have happened to drive yields back up after this amazing plunge? Again, so it's difficult. The reversal seems to have been driven by the sort of algorithms, by the high-frequency guys, because they're the ones that were in the market trading. Um, a couple of explanations. Some algorithms have kind of sort of levels at which they just think a market is trading too high and will reverse. So they'll start putting downward pressure on that market to sell. There were some other factors involved with dealers buying behavior to do with a sort of technical thing called a gamma trap. But basically what you need to know is that as pr 
prices were going up, they were continually buying. And as prices came down, it forced them to sell. Which Self-reinforcing is a, behavior. Exactly. It's a slightly bizarre way of trading. And so that reversal just basically came when the market was so off, off piste that it, there had to be a correction. In other words, so out of whack from anything that could be considered fundamental value for these, for these exactly. securities that there were these processes in play that would automatically trigger a reversal. And that's what happened. That's what the report... That's what we think could have happened. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we should be clear that everything we're saying here is sort of subject to a million different caveats because we don't actually know, which is the fascinating point. It's tough. And there are some people with some really strong opinions out there about sort of what the key ingredient was. You know, was it HFT firms? Was it the fact that dealers have retrenched? Was it this kind of weird hedging strategy that banks were employing that was self-reinforcing? Right. And... Really, what you have to kind of come away from is, well, we we know all these things could have factored. I want to now talk about the possible implications of that day, because you said earlier that even though we can't pinpoint the precise reasons, what happened on that day does represent, or it seems to be a symptom of, a big fundamental shift in the way that U.S. treasuries, this hugely important market, are traded. That it used to be this kind of dealer model where you'd, I guess, call up your dealer and you'd place a big trade. Now... High-frequency trading dominates a big part of it. So talk about that for a little while. What does that mean for the treasury market? I think this is by far and away the most important thing to, to now focus on. October 15th was nine months ago. Most people in the market, most people who trade this stuff have moved on. They've started to actually analyze what this means. It means that these high-frequency guys are here to stay. Like They make up a much more significant proportion of the market. And the Treasury and other regulators are now assessing that and assessing whether that needs tighter regulation, more transparency, greater rules around that. It's of particular importance to the U.S. Treasury because this is how they finance like the U.S. government. That's a pretty important role, <laughs> <Of> right? <course. laughs> and this is the largest government securities market in the world. Like it's, it's used as a benchmark, a bedrock of kind of global finance. Especially because we now have sort of constant worries about liquidity and what happens when there's this kind of rushing out effect where there's a sudden, a sudden drying up of liquidity. Well, this is really the market where you don't want that to happen. Right. The report says that this change in market structure, this changing dynamic may mean that we can expect these events more often, that this could happen again. That's a pretty bold statement to make. And if you're an investor in this market, if you're trading this stuff, then you might want to be paid a little bit more money to hold something with this new risk involved, this unexpected volatility. All right. Well, that's a sunny place on which to end our conversation. Joe Renison, thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much. And moving right along, we've got Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent, the dulcet-voiced, dulcet-sounding, dulcet-toned. Shannon Bond, how are you? Fine, thanks, Cardiff. How are you? Good. I just really love saying that word. Dulcet? Yes. What is it? I'm mean? not even going to say it a fourth time because I love, <laughs> I love it so much. I don't want to cheapen the earlier <laughs> usage. Uh, you're here to talk to us today about the social media spending by the presidential candidates right the facebook election the facebook election okay but before we even get into that i just want to ask you something do you remember this yes we can 
Yes, we can. I had forgotten all about it. Thank you so much for reminding me. Of course. So that, for our listeners who don't remember or were too young, okay, you and I aren't, but our listeners might be, that was the song Yes, We Can, produced by Will I Am. Okay, in 2008, it's the first instance that I can remember of the mass appeal of social media for a presidential candidate. I don't really remember this being a huge thing in 2004. I don't think that some of the companies that we now use, some of the social media organizations that we all are familiar with, were big enough yet. Um, But now, obviously, they've all matured, and now it's kind of widespread, and it's big money, right? That's right. So, I mean, the Obama campaign back in 2008 were sort of, you know, they got a lot of credit for being sort of the first campaign to really take advantage of these new digital ways of reaching voters and particularly social media. But yeah, I mean, Facebook was not nearly at the scale it was. It is now back then. So this year, we're looking at projections of a billion dollars in online spending. That's six times from what it was in 2012. And more than half of that is projected to go to social media sites, which will also include Twitter, YouTube, you know, even potentially Snapchat and some of the really the newest platforms coming along. Yeah. So in this piece you've got in the Financial Times on this, you really emphasize the importance of video. What's the big appeal of video? And is it enough, do you think, to supplant the role of television? So video, I mean, we've seen this outside the political realm too, right? Like Facebook has gotten huge into video. We already know how big YouTube is. You know, for any kind of advertiser, you're selling something the most compelling way. They call it sight, sound, and motion, right? You get to see something. You get to hear directly from the candidate. But, you know, when it comes to TV ads in the political realm, that's still going to be the dominant you know, amount yeah. of spending. We're talking, you know, multi-billion dollars spent there, huge benefit to local broadcasters. What's interesting is that there is more spending online. And whereas before, you're kind of seeing that being that replacing direct mail campaigns. Now you are seeing it replacing some of that television spending or doing what the television spending has done with video. Yeah, I was intrigued also by your kind of sidebar story that was attached to the larger piece, which talked about the role that social media is playing in particular for local candidates, for smaller candidates, uh, candidates for state and local government elections. And the idea here is that social media is better for targeting and for testing the kinds of messages that actually work, right? They're targeting them towards the voters that they think are most likely to see them. They can also experiment with testing when they're most effective. That's right. So, I mean, TV's pretty expensive, frankly, still, and there's a limited amount of time. And particularly if you are running in a presidential campaign year, there aren't going to be a lot of spaces left for you to run your ads. And you just might not have the budget to do it anyway to grab TV. On social media, yeah, you can do incredibly specific targeting so you know what households in what neighborhoods you need to convince you need to make sure getting out there on election day you need to make sure are hearing about the issues they care about you know the issue for my neighbor might be reproductive choice the household on the other side of me you know it might be economics and you can really target that way and you can try a bunch of things out do really quick sort of text style a b testing where you test different messages see what plays and then that can go back if you do have a tv budget that can go back and inform your tv budget but it's a much cheaper way of doing I guess I would imagine also that occasionally you get to hit a home run where essentially something's so clever or so well produced or funny enough that it goes viral and then you only had to pay for it the one time and then everybody does the work for you. Whereas with TV, you're essentially paying for the time itself for the space. So if it's shown over and over and over again, you're paying for it each time it's shown. Right. I mean, that's the dream on social media, right? Think about that Oreo tweet during the blackout of the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Explain that. 
So during the halftime show at the Super Bowl, there was a blackout and Oreo's social media team like jumped on it, put out this funny tweet. It just got retweeted a million times. It got cited in every, you know, news story about it. We're still citing it today. You know, that didn't cost Oreo anything. It cost them, you know, their social media team thinking to do that that day. Okay, let's talk about some specific examples, the ones we've liked. Hillary Clinton on Facebook. What happened there? So there's a user on Facebook, Humans of New York. This account, this guy goes around, he's a photographer. He takes pictures of people in New York and writes sort of little mini kind of interviews with them. Um, and he had this picture that went up a couple of weeks ago of a young teenager saying, you know, saying that he was gay and he was worried about growing up in a world, you know, that he wouldn't be accepted. And Hillary Clinton got on Facebook and commented on that post saying, you know, it's going to be all right. You're going to have a lot of support. There's people out there that care about you. We know we, we supposedly know it was her because it was signed H, which is the way she signs her posts and her tweets. The post itself, the picture itself, got a huge amount of likes and engagements on Facebook. But Hillary's comment was like the most liked comment. You know, they think they got something over 50,000 likes on there. One of the things they talk about that politicians talk about why they like using social media is it allows them to show some kind of sort of human side, a human interaction. Yeah, they can also tailor the message quite a bit, right? So if this was, uh, I guess, a sort of a touching example of using social media. Let's transition now to like a really caustic one and a really funny one, I thought. Donald Trump says that Rick Perry is essentially a failure. Uh, he didn't secure the border enough while he was governor of Texas. He said this in a tweet. In a tweet. He tweeted this. And then Rick Perry responds on YouTube. Hey, Donald. I saw your tweet the other day, but I think you might need to borrow my glasses to get a good look at the steps I took to secure the border while I was governor of Texas. What do you think? Was that effective? Is that going to work? I mean, what I think what's really interesting here is this you're, you're seeing these candidates like, you know, go back and forth in a way that they don't even do on the debate platform. Right. Like on any of these debates are so scripted. They're only talking to the camera, to the voter. But here they're actually interacting. You know, they're talking about a policy issue, a tweet from Donald Trump that's responded to in a, in a YouTube post by Rick Perry that kind of is posted on Facebook and elsewhere. I mean, it really is using this medium to complete, you know, completely cut out any sort of traditional way of, you know, issuing a statement or giving an interview. Yeah, it's fascinating because 15 years ago, I would have understood like three words in the previous sentence you just said, right? In the yeah. previous, you know, paragraph or a few sentences you just said. And now this is all sort of makes it, well, it's, you know, one guy says something in a tweet, another guy responds in YouTube, Hillary Clinton's on Facebook. This stuff didn't exist. 15 no, years ago, No, right? I mean, and now we even have Periscope, so that the Twitter right. Twitter's live streaming app, which basically, you know, allows anybody, you can just, you know, take out your phone, show anybody who's following you on Twitter what you're seeing right now. Or, We're seeing candidates use that. Yes, or announce a presidential candidacy, for instance, Ted Cruz. On Twitter, yeah, he went out there, you know, he did give a speech announcing his campaign, but before he did that, his first official confirmation that he was running for president and he was the first Republican candidate to jump in was on Twitter. So I guess this really is a sustained way of doing things. I wonder if this means that someday we'll just end up getting fewer rather than more debates, which I think would improve all of our all of our lives quite a bit. It certainly would lead to a saner world, one in which turning to the Daily Show for your daily dose of mental sanity won't be necessary i'm not sure that the networks would like that so much. no no not at all anyways shannon bond the ft's media reporter thanks for being here thanks cardiff and finally on the show we're joined by allison schrager an economist with a phd from columbia turned author she's got an article in playboy magazine 
about how the end of men thesis might have been a little bit premature. Now, this thesis, for those of you who haven't heard of it before, is the idea that the labor market is evolving in such a way that's going to disadvantage men, and specifically the men who in the past would have gotten blue-collar work, middle management, middle-class, middle-skilled jobs. But those jobs are disappearing, and they might not be coming back. Allison is here with us in the studio. You're in Playboy, Allison. You're going to be psyched about this. I'm so psyched. I've never been more proud. Have you told your parents yet that you're in Playboy? Have you have you phrased it exactly that way? Actually, I gotta say my mother apparently turned into Chris Kardashian when I told her they even approached me. She was so excited. And they even put my picture in. Even before they asked for it, she's like, You should send them your picture. She knows who Chris Kardashian is? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh my mother does, yeah. But I swear she she turned into it. She's like, You gotta get your picture in Playboy. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your article. Uh-huh. Okay. So your article is about essentially the future of men in the labor market, in the labor market of the future. Right. And it's a response to an idea that I think most famously has been pushed by Hannah Rosen, the idea that the labor market is evolving in such a way that disadvantages men that would have historically had kind of middle class, middle management and blue collar jobs. And I think before we actually get to your piece, we should probably first talk about the end of men thesis itself and maybe give a kind of a survey of the labor market now and how it breaks down along gender lines. You want to go first or you want me to go first? Yeah, so what we're seeing is a lot of shifts in the labor market, mainly away from manufacturing into services, particularly healthcare and education, which are areas women particularly were, you know, traditionally been more dominant in teaching and nursing. So that's where most of the job creation is going. Plus, in general, with the knowledge economy, it seems to be middle class these days. You have to have gone to college and have done somewhat well in school. And women tend to do better in school. They are also more likely to be in college than men now. So it just seems like the future is theirs when it comes to the labor market. Sure. I guess there's sort of one big caveat to that, right? Or a couple, actually, of big caveats to that. One is the gender wage gap, which is still there, and Mm -hmm. it's still pretty big. Exactly. And I mean, that's where I feel like this, this whole idea that's the end of men kind of falls apart. Because the fact is, you know, people and, you know, men in general who want to, you know, work, they're resilient. And, you know, the economy shifts a lot and we don't know how things shake out, but consistently men have found their place. And one of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons for the gender wage gap. A lot of it's discrimination, choices of occupation, but a big part of it is that men are willing to work longer and more irregular hours. Yeah, this was something uh, I think uh, in a piece by Claudia Golden, the economist, this was what she stressed, right? That this was all constant, that the gender wage gap was largely concentrated in a few different kinds of occupations that demanded big weekly hours out of Exactly. Out of I, I spoke to her husband, Larry Katz, for this article, and he pointed out that like, if you take OBGYNs, like, there's even a wage gap between male and female OBGYNs. And you wouldn't expect that, right? Because if discrimination is going to go anyway, it's like women like women doctors. And there's a lot more women who are OBGYNs than men. So you'd have every reason to think women would at least be equal, if not higher. But it turns out men even earn quite a bit more when they're OBGYNs just because they're willing to deliver babies at 3 a.m. They're willing to be open on the weekends. Most women, you know, especially if they have a family, want more regular hours so they can have more of a work-life balance. Okay. And I said that there were two caveats to this mm-hmm. idea that men are going to be the only ones who are sort of left out of the labor market of the future. 
The second caveat is C-suite jobs. They still have the vast majority of CEO positions, board positions. That's changing now, right? But still a long way to go. It is and is a long way to go because often to get to those jobs, you have to completely sacrifice any sort of personal life. So kind of this uh, similar idea. Okay. So that out of the way, let's let's talk about the end of men thesis specifically because it relates to a lot of what you just said. But this, I think, was the idea that for men who are in the kinds of steady middle class, middle management jobs in the past, mm-hmm. um, they've lost their jobs possibly permanently because of structural changes in the economy. And it's not clear what they're going to be able to do now going forward, in part because they're less educated than women are and in part because those jobs just aren't coming back. Yeah, a lot of those jobs can be filled by machines now. And probably a lot of the uh, jobs that have been replaced by robots certainly have affected men more than women, which is another reason this sort of fear has arisen. I hear that, and I guess I start to think about the kinds of effects that it's going to have on families as Mm -hmm. well. This means, and I think this is already happening, that women are increasingly going to be the main breadwinners in families. It means that, to some extent, a lot of men that would have historically taken jobs like this are going to be less attractive marriage partners, Mm -hmm. right? And then there are sort of the sociological aspects of this, one of which is, for instance, that we're going to have to get over kind of archaic notions of like gender norms and what men and women are supposed to do that we probably should have gotten rid of a long time ago, but they're still there. And there's going to be some friction in going from one state of the world to another. Yeah, every uh, man I've talked to about this article always brings that up. Like, I think their own insecurity about where will this leave me. But I, I just don't even understand where, and I guess maybe it's how our society has evolved lately, that being a man and being masculine is holding a nine-to-five job and being a stable provider. Because, you know, men and women have always contributed in their own ways economically to a household. And one way, and this is sort of what I get into in the piece, is how men might work in the future might be in more entrepreneurial roles. This is Larry Katz's whole artisanal thesis that what you will find is sort of middle skill men working for themselves in entrepreneurial jobs where they combine good communication skills and an ability to use technology. And this isn't necessarily you need an engineering degree. I interviewed a guy, I don't, I think he might've finished high school, but I'm not even sure, who just taught himself some design software and he works as a high-end contractor. What he really can do well is he takes these digital designs, he sends them all over the world. He says, I can talk to architects, I can talk to clients, I can talk to the guy who builds cabinets in Germany, and I bring this all together. I mean, this is less stable employment, it's less certain, but it does bring in good amount of money. So what we might see is maybe sort of a shift that I don't see why it's inherently sort of emasculating, which is maybe the man in the, in the relationship goes for these bigger kills, like more uncertain but higher payoff jobs and women bring like health insurance and sort of a stable paycheck in. I mean, this is the thesis of your piece. Yeah, right? exactly. This is the very essence of your piece. Um, and it's interesting because when I when I think of an artisan, I, I either think of like somebody from the 19th century who's mm-hmm. doing something with the smoldering iron or something like that. Uh, or I think of, you know, a breadbasket in Brooklyn. This is interesting. This is the idea that you essentially bring something new, bring your own abstract thought, your own creativity, your own personality um, to a job that in the past might have been done by people but is now being done by machines, right? So if you have – I think Larry Katz mm-hmm. himself has used the example of like a physical therapist who before would have taken a patient through the range of motions. Well, now some machines can help with that part. But if you show up and, you're, and you have a good personality and you're very – I don't know, you're very sympathetic and you're sort of interesting, that you bring something a little bit different to the role. 
Exactly. And it's less physically taxing on that physical therapist. So maybe you can see more people during the day. See, his thesis is all about like we can bring artisanal work back if people can learn how to work with and benefit from technology and do jobs that can never really be fully replaced. Let's talk about a couple of ways in which this might not happen. I think Larry Katz himself has been pretty careful to say this is what he hopes will happen. This is a distinct possibility because men in the past have always adapted. This is a point that you make in your piece as well. But it, it is something that strikes me as likely to be a multi-generational shift if it does happen. I mean, this, is, this isn't something that's going to necessarily save or even help the men who've lost their jobs to automation or to globalization or to other structural changes, right? I mean, with, in all those other times men have adapted, there's been a very messy period that went on for a generation or two. Okay. I mean, if you're a laid-off factory worker, there's no guarantee you're going to learn how to make this transition if you're only five years away from retirement. I mean, maybe you will. It depends how industrious you are or motivated or what skills you have to work with. But it's certainly not a guarantee. And I think the big concern people always ask me about is, are there going to be enough of these jobs? And I think it's just- What do you say? It's impossible to know. When early industrialization happened that took all the artisan jobs away, people would have never looked and thought, oh, there's going to be enough jobs for people in factories either. Yeah, I mean, that, that actually was my second point, which is, it, I guess, right now it's more aspirational than it is descriptive of the world that we have right now. In other words, it's something we hope will happen, but there, you just said it. There is no guarantee. But I'm also struck by the fact that this is, uh, this is in some ways, a technology story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a state of the world that will come to pass precisely because technology has already changed so many other parts of the economy. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, it's using technology to your benefit, which in the past men have always been able to do. So it's finding new, better jobs. Uh, like The contractor I spoke to, he had this great line. I'm not sure if it en- ended up in the end. He's like, I decided to embrace the technological lifestyle when his original business model was completely upended by technology. Yeah. And now he's thriving, making more money ha- and having to work less. In terms of policy, let's talk about whether or not this means we should have a bigger safety net because I hear this and it sounds great. Um, and if it were to happen, uh, that would be a big boon, I think, for a lot of families. But at the same time, not everybody's in a family. In fact, increasingly, the world is full of more and more single people. And so I guess I wonder if this means that men who take on these kinds of roles or women, because by the way, the artisanal economy is not excluded to women. I don't pretend not it is. At all, yeah. talking. I mean, this can apply to anybody. But at the same time, if the new jobs that are created are sort of higher risk, less certainty. Yeah, there are some high payoffs, but for a lot of people, that also means very frequent failures if that means that we need a better or bigger safety net. Yeah, I think we have to embrace rather than sort of try to cut down on the gig economy and come up with institutions that can support them. A lot of that is going to be regular health insurance, which I suppose Obamacare is already helping because you now can get insurance outside your employer easier. And also sort of different sort of products around wage insurance. So people can smooth sort of big wage shocks, you know, if they don't work for a year, have something they can rely on. Okay. And relatedly, how should people think about how they educate themselves, right? What's the best way to prepare yourself for an economy like this, if it's the kind of economy you want to participate in? Because obviously, Mm -hmm. some people actually do want those more stable, longer lasting jobs. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to want to do it. But for somebody who does want to embrace the artisanal economy, how do they prepare themselves? Well, so they should study what they're interested in and get as much education as possible. And because it's not really training for one specific job anymore. It's an ability to sort of integrate technology and learn what's new. So you want to be smart, you want to be adaptable, and you want to be open to change. 
did you talk to Larry Katz, by the way, about this piece before you before you wrote it, or did you just like consult uh, some of his writings? No, I interviewed him. Oh, you did? Oh, cool. Yeah, no, and this is what I thought was weird, is I, I was telling other economists I knew they interviewed him for Playboy. And yeah, because those quotes were original for him. And everyone was like, oh my God, Larry Katz is going to be in Playboy. That's the funniest thing I've heard. I'm like, what, you don't think it's weird I am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So he was, he was he knew it was going to go into Playboy and everything. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I emailed him and I'm like, I'm writing an essay for Playboy about artisans where you'll be interviewed. And he was like, yeah. Okay. Allison Traeger, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. But we did promise a message to our listeners, and here it is. The FT has given the green light to start producing Alpha Chats more often, more frequently, more regularly. And we're really excited about this. But what we really want to know is what you want to hear. So we've got a newsroom full of journalists that are veritable specialists in the topics that they cover. And the podcast itself is still going to focus on business and economics. But obviously, there's quite a bit of breadth that you can cover in that landscape. So let us know what you want to hear. And you can get in touch with us at alphachat at ft.com. That's our email address. Again, alphachat at ft.com. Or you can give us a call at 917-551-5012. Again, that's 917-551-5012. And when you leave a message, let us know if you're okay with our playing your call on the podcast. If not, we'll totally respect it, but let us know. Or finally, you can tweet at me at Cardiff Garcia. Again, on Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. We'd love to hear from you, the good, the bad the terrible, the suggestions, the questions, whatever you got. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you come back. This podcast was produced and edited by Amy Keene. She also chose the music. She pretty much runs the show around here. And it was recorded in the New York studios of the Financial Times. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.